Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Welcome brothers and sisters uh, to this, the final lecture and the series of lectures. Uh, Inshallah, uh, the Shaykh uh, in the last lecture was covering the topic of virtues of the Prophet وسلم, and his companions. He managed to cover more or less half of that. He is going to finish that uh, topic and then move into the final one, which is the ruling on adhering to various groups. Without further ado, I leave the microphone to the Shaykh, inshallah. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ba'ad. So, you know, we're, I guess we're at point 80, we're finishing that point off, and that the, you know, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the khilaf upon, you know, the model of the prophethood would last for 30 years. And so, those 30 years, you know, come to a conclusion, um, not really with Ali, but really with Al-Hassan, you know, Ali's son, because Al-Hassan um, was six months Khalifa, and if you add Al-Hassan six months, it ends up as 30 years exactly. Um, so, what, what, this, what the author said here, that the last of the 30 years was during the Khilaf of Ali, I mean, it's true that he was the last of the four, but... It, technically speaking, I mean, if you have to add the six months of Al-Hassan, you know, then it really ends the end of 30. Uh, then uh, Ibn Qudama said, We testify to the ten being in paradise. As the Prophet ﷺ testified for them, saying, Abu Bakr is in paradise, Umar is in paradise, Uthman is in paradise, Ali is in paradise, Talha is in paradise, as Zubair uh, is in paradise, Sa'id is in paradise, Sa'id is in paradise, Abdurrahman bin Auf is in paradise, and Abu Ubaidah bin al-Jarrah is in paradise. Whomever the Prophet ﷺ has testified for him being in paradise, we testify the such, the same. Like the Prophet ﷺ statement that Al-Hassan and Hussein are the two leaders or masters of the youth of paradise. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ said regarding Thabit bin Qais bin Shammas, that he was among the inhabitants of paradise. So, the important point is that in that hadith where the Prophet ﷺ pointed out ten of his companions, we should understand that that was not unique to them. I mean, some Muslims, when they, when they go across the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ said that those ten companions were in paradise, they then start thinking that we cannot say that any other companion by name is in paradise. And that's incorrect. Because the Prophet ﷺ mentioned regarding, I mean, almost 40 or, or so of his companions, he mentioned them by name being in paradise, outside of the ten. And likewise, the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looked upon the uh, participants in the Battle of Badr, and they were 313 in number, and said, اعملوا ما شئتم, Do what you wish, for you have been forgiven already. So, the point is, is that the the Prophet Sallallahu testimony to these ten is not to be understood as restricting that testimony only for those ten, but it means that those ten who were mentioned in that hadith are the leaders of the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu but not that they're the only ones who paradise has been promised for them. However, we have a rule that we do not say that anyone among the Muslims from the Ahlul Qibla. Ahlul Qibla means people who face our Qibla, face Mecca in prayer, meaning Muslims. We do not judge anyone amongst the Muslims 
and say that specifically he's in paradise or specifically he'll be in hell. Except for those whom the Prophet has said regarding that. We hope for the doers of good and we fear for those who have done evil. So for instance, if somebody dies amongst the Muslims, we can't say that he's in paradise. Nor can we say that he's in hell. If he was a good doer and he lived an upright life, we, we hope for him that Allah will grant him paradise. And if he was an evildoer, we, we fear for his soul. We pray for his forgiveness and so forth. But we cannot testify. Except if the Prophet ﷺ said that this specific individual is in paradise, and we say so because the Prophet ﷺ has told us so. And likewise when it comes to the unbelievers. The unbelievers, we can say as a group, as a whole, that whoever does not believe in Islam is in the hellfire. Whoever worships an idol is in the hellfire. Whoever, you know, dies as a Christian or as a Jew is in the hellfire. But when you come now to a specific unbeliever, I mean, if you were to go now to a graveyard and there was some sort of funeral for a person, an unbeliever, be he a Christian or a Jew or a pagan, you cannot specifically say that that specific unbeliever is in the hellfire. Because you don't know. Why don't you know? Because you do not know, even if he died upon unbelief, you do not know was the evidence presented to him in his life sufficient enough so that he has no excuse before Allah on the Day of Judgment. But we can say as a whole that whoever doesn't believe in Islam and dies upon unbelief is in the hellfire. And that's part of our beliefs, you know. Just like whoever believes in Islam and dies upon that will eventually go to paradise. But now when you come to a specific unbeliever, you cannot specifically judge that unbeliever. So, you know... John Doe, who lived on so-and-so uh, street in East Ham, London, uh, you can't say regarding him if he, if he passes away that he's in paradise, I mean, if he, that he's in hell. Because we don't know, I mean, were the proofs established upon him? Where did, does he, uh, you know, did he hear the truth? Did he hear it? That's something for Allah to decide. But in this world... This is where people get confused. In this world, we, we treat him as an unbeliever. See, in the world, you know, we deal in this world upon what is apparent to us. Okay? So, if somebody dies, and he wasn't a Muslim, he died, let's say he was, he was a Christian, or a Jew, or a Sikh, or I mean, whatever. I mean, and he dies as an unbeliever, so we say, okay, it appears to us that he's died upon unbelief. And so, therefore, I mean, we're not going to wash his body. We're not going to bury him amongst the Muslims. We're not going to pray Salat al-Janazah for him. We're not going to inherit from him, nor could, you know, if a Muslim died, he would inherit from the Muslims, right? Um, likewise, for the people who are like children who die. If, if a child dies, it's according to whoever his guardian is. If his guardian was Muslims, right? Then the child is washed. I mean, like an infant, a newborn infant. Let's say two newborn infants are, 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 are born prematurely in the hospital, and both of them die. One newborn infant who was born prematurely, his parents were Muslims. The other newborn infant, his parents were non-Muslims, irrespective of the religion, right? The, new, the, the premature infant Muslim child who died would be washed and buried amongst the Muslims and, and prayed for the, his soul or her soul. The, the unbelieving child, you wouldn't wash and bury it amongst the Muslims. Not that we're saying that this is going to be held responsible. I mean, he was a newborn infant, I mean, didn't live a single year. But that, because his guardians are unbelievers, so in this world, his ruling follows that of his guardians. And the same, same way in, with the case of a person who is mentally ill, let's say who's mentally retarded, okay? 
and cannot think. I mean, if his guardians were Muslims, then we would bury him and wash him with the Muslims. But if his guardian were non-Muslims, they'd be considered to be from them and buried in their graveyard, and we wouldn't, you know, do the rights that we give to a Muslim. So, we need to distinguish between the rulings in this world and the rulings in the hereafter. So, in this world, we say, whoever says, La ilaha Allah, and dies upon that will eventually go to paradise. He might be punished in hell, or she might be punished in hell for a period of time due to the sins that he did not repent from, but they will eventually go to paradise. And likewise, whoever dies on other than Islam, we say will be in the hellfire. But we cannot say specifically whether the proof has been established upon that specific unbeliever uh, and therefore condemn him specifically to the hellfire. Are there any questions regarding that point? Because that's a very important point. Yeah, I mean, or let's say he was dying and he was holding on to a crucifix at the time of death. Huh? And the brother's saying, what happens if he was doing a, a, a state of uh, act of unbelief? You know? <coughs> and he was, so he was holding on to a crucifix or to an idol, you know what I'm saying, or, you know, ask, calling upon Buddha or whatever. I mean, the point is, is that even if he wasn't doing those deeds, if he didn't say the Shahada, then he's an unbeliever in this world. So he's dealt with the unbeliever. Now, how Allah will judge that soul, we can't enter into that. Uh-huh. Even if he did the act of unbelief upon his death. Because we do not know if Allah, you know, will find that soul to have the message having reached that soul, and so then the, the, that soul has no excuse before him. I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that he does not, we do not punish anybody until we send a messenger. So until the, the message comes to a person, then that person is not held responsible by Allah. This is from Allah's mercy. Now, how can you now say that the message has reached this person or has reached that person in a sufficient amount that that person has no excuse before Allah? There's no way you can say that. I mean, even if you give a person a Quran and so forth, I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no way you can say that the, the message has been reached him so the person has no excuse before Allah. I switch up. Yes? But what about in light of that, um, that incident where Allah gathered all the souls Right. Uh, the brother is asking about what about what's, what we find in Surah Al-A'raf and also in Hadith and Tirmidhi that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam, he brought forth from Adam's loins all the, the, his descendants until the Day of Judgment. So we all, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to us, are we not, am I not your Lord? And we said, bala, yes, indeed. And we all fell prostrate. So is this a sufficient evidence? No, this is not, because we don't remember that covenant anymore. That covenant that we gave to Allah Azawajal, we don't remember it. None of us remembers that covenant. So Allah is not going to hold us responsible for that. That's why Allah told us in Surah Nisa, that ayah which we, we discussed earlier, that, you know, when we discussed the session on Qadr, on Allah's decree, that, you know, He sent the messengers so the people would not have a hujjah, an argument with Allah, after sending the messengers. So had that been sufficient, Allah wouldn't, wouldn't need to send the messengers. So we don't remember that. But that initial prostration, right, is reflected in our fitrah, in our natural state. That we, Our natural disposition as human beings is to worship Allah alone and not to commit shirk. That's our natural disposition. And so our, our act of, of, of submitting to Allah, Azza wa Jalla, 
before we came into this earth, you know what I'm saying, before Adam even came on this earth, right, is, is what makes, is part of what makes our fitrah have the natural disposition to worship Allah alone. But it does not in itself an evidence that Allah will hold us for by itself. So that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the messengers. No, I mean, that, it doesn't mean that, because, you know, it had that been the case, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have not sent the messengers. So, you know, that, so that, that argument is not, is not, the, the evidence was not established by that alone. I mean, the evidence is established, you know what I'm saying, and that's why, look at the verses in the Qur'an, look at Surah Al-Mulk, the 70th Surah in the Qur'an, look at Surah Al-Zumar, the 39th Surah in the Qur'an and other examples. When the people enter into the hellfire, what do the angels say to them? Didn't a warner come to you? You know, see, they always, the, the people enter the hellfire, and the angels ask them, did not a warner come to you? So that means, the people in the hellfire, before they enter it, they recognize that a warner came to them, the message was reached them, but yet they still, you know, insisted upon uh, deviating and, and, and opposing that messenger. And I'm Ya'atikum Nadir. So so that's 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 the the point. But um, at the same time, uh, I mean just the general principle we want to understand that we do not testify for anybody in specific being in heaven or hell unless the Prophet has testified for that. We can testify in general. Now and likewise, uh, point number eighty three, uh, we do not impute unbelief to anyone of Ahlul Qibla due to a sin and we do not expel him from Islam due to an act. Right. We do not impute unbelief to anyone of Ahlul Qibla due to a sin. In other words, sins that are less than unbelief. But if you do a, a sin which is unbelief, then you can become an unbeliever. So for instance, shirk is a sin. But if somebody does shirk, he is we can say that he's apostated from Islam. Sorcery is a sin. But if he does sorcery, we can say that he's apostated from Islam. Um, uh, making fun, mocking the Quran, or mocking Allah, or mocking the Messenger, وسلم, are all sins. But if you do so, we can say that a person has apostated from Islam. Nor do we expel him from the fold of Islam due to an act, meaning an action other than the actions which expel from Islam. Like, for instance, if a person voluntarily makes prostrates to a crucifix or to a uh, an idol. If a person, for instance, um, uh, defiles the Mus'haf, the Qur'an. If a person, for instance, uh, forsakes a prayer. So those acts, I mean, will expel somebody from the fold of Islam. But in general, what he means by acts, he means like sins like stealing, murder, lying, uh, being... Uh, not being righteous towards one's parents, harming one's neighbor, and so forth. These acts, you know, do not expel somebody from Islam. But they're just sins, and they, they lower one's faith. And uh, a person might be punished for it if he doesn't repent. Um, likewise, the, the, uh, the, uh, Ibn Qudama then says, we hold that hajj and jihad remain, uh, and also to obey every imam, righteous or wicked, and to pray Jumu'ah behind them is permissible. So, you know, what this point is, is that if the Muslims have a leader, 
then it's obligatory upon the Muslims to obey that leader in that which is not disobedience to Allah. The Muslims have a Muslim leader, and that Muslim leader is ruling them by the Sharia. The Muslims are required to obey him in that which is um, considered to be the obedience of Allah, so long as that act does not entail disobedience. And so therefore, if he leads them in Hajj, if he leads them in Jihad, he doesn't have to be himself righteous in order for us to follow him in Hajj or follow him in Jihad. And likewise, if, if, if he leads us in Jumu'ah prayer, we can still pray behind them. Now, so many people when they hear this, they, get, they start getting, oh, well, what about the leaders today and so forth. It's a different situation. I mean, you know, we're talking about leaders who rule the Muslims by the Sharia. Leaders who rule the Muslims by Sharia. Secular leaders who say, you know, I don't, you know, I don't adhere to the Sharia and I don't want to fight people who try to call to the implementation of Sharia. I mean, obviously this is not applicable to them. This is a different situation because they've fallen outside of the fold of Islam. But the point here is that concerning a Muslim leader who rules the people by the Sharia, then Hajj and Jihad and the Jumu'ah prayers and the Eid prayers and so forth are to be prayed and we're supposed to obey him even if he's wicked in his personal conduct. And the reason why is that, I mean, because the unity of the Muslims is more important than, you know, than, um, than his personal sin. I mean, his personal sin is going to go back against him, but the unity of the Muslim and keeping these acts like the Hajj and Jihad and the, uh, the, uh, the public prayers, keeping them continuing is more important. Uh, then Ibn Qudama mentions a hadith uh, reported by Abu Dawood uh, that three matters are, pertain to the root of faith, uh, that one does not shed the blood of whoever says La ilaha Allah or call him a kafir due to a sin. The jihad will continue since the time that Allah sent the Prophet until we this Ummah fights Dajjal and is not nullified because the ruler is a tyrant or because he's just and doesn't want to participate and likewise that one must believe in Allah's qadr, his decrees anyway this hadith has, uh, is weak but the meanings of the hadith is, is, is sound but to say the Prophet said so is, is incorrect um, then Ibn Qudama mentions that from the sunnah is to support and love the companions of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to mention their fine qualities to seek Allah's mercy for them, to seek forgiveness for them, to withhold from mentioning their faults and what befell them from dispute, and to believe in the merit and to recognize their precedence over all of this ummah. Um, I think that's pretty uh, clear in terms of... Uh, Uh, it's, it's pretty clear in terms of what that um, uh, implies, most of those matters. But I think what's specific we should discuss is the, the matter about withholding from mentioning their faults and what befell them from dispute. Uh, if you read the history of the Prophet's companions, after the Prophet's death, the Prophet's companions did fall into dispute. But the way of the people, the Sunnah, is that we recognize that these men were not infallible. They were not you know, angels, and they were not prophets of Allah, messengers, but rather they were men. And they have a merit, and they have a precedence, and they have a, an honor for being the companions of the Prophet So what they fell into dispute, we do not delve into. We do not go into and discuss 
and try to say that this group was right and this group was faultable. Rather say they're all the companions of the Prophet May Allah be pleased with them all. They all have their merit and they all have their deeds, which they did. And this is how the Prophet commanded us when he said, Do not revile my companions, for if one of you contributed as much gold as Uhud Mountain, it would not amount to as much as a mud of one of them or half of it. A mud means a handful. So, I mean, who, who has been to Medina and seen Uhud Mountain? Shofas, okay. So, I mean, a few, a few of the brothers have been. So, I mean, Uhud Mountain is a very large mountain, right? And imagine, if you were to give as much gold as that in Sadaqah, it would not equal as a handful or half a handful given in charity by one of the Prophet's companions. So look at their merit over us. I mean, if they were to give the whole mountain of Uhud, if we were to give the whole mountain of Uhud in gold, who, who in the world has that much gold? I mean, even the richest man on earth, I mean, you know what I'm saying, Bill Gates or whoever it might be. And he, doesn't, he doesn't have gold of the, of the amount of Mount Uhud. So, you know, imagine if, you know, even if you were to have that much gold and you were to give it in charity, you know, with ikhlas, only for the sake of Allah, yet it would not equal, you know, the handful or half a handful given by one of the companions of the Prophet. So, I mean, what the, the great difference. So, that's why we don't delve into what occurred between them and try to find fault with them. Because, I mean, they're of such a high rank above us, it's not, I mean, it's not for our job to get into that matter. And so that's why we ask Allah's mercy for them, we seek forgiveness for them, we believe in their merit, we recognize their precedence, we mention their fine qualities, we support them, we love them. These, these are the, 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 the feelings we have towards them. And one thing which is very important for Muslim brothers and sisters to do is to know something about the lives of the Prophet's companions. There was um, three books uh, translated, three volumes set, uh, by the uh, Institute of Islamic and Arabic Sciences in North America, IISA, um, uh, by Abdurrahman Basha, I think, uh, uh, about stories from the lives of companions. I don't know, is this, has it come to the United Kingdom? Is it here? Is it? It, it is, though. So. Yeah, so, I mean, that, that book is a very good book, too, you know, an introductory book. It gives you some sort of idea of who the Prophet's companions were. And also, another important thing, which is better than that, is that if you look at any book of hadith, like in Sahih al-Bukhari or Sahih Muslim or in uh, Sunan Abu Dawood you'll find a, a book in there which talks about the qualities and the virtues of the Prophet's companions you can just read them and you can you know, know something of the virtues of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali and the rest of the companions of the Prophet but those books are nice because it tells you some of um, something about their lives you know. and I guess also uh, Jumu'ah magazine right, to give the uh, some sort of recognition from Munteza. <laughs> I think uh, Jumar Magazine usually, uh, if I remember, they usually have like maybe once a month they, they have a story, uh, usually about a companion of the Prophet. Oh, that book is, is on the internet as well? Okay, so that's another thing. I wasn't aware of that. So, Alhamdulillah, that, that book about the buyers of the Prophet's companions is on the internet. And uh, if anybody wants to uh, get that uh, URL, they can see Brother Abdul Salam after the class. Now, uh, so, so that's uh, regarding the Prophet's companions. And in general, you know, in general, with all the believers which have preceded us, you know, Allah tells us that we, you know, that we should say, you know, Rabbana, our Lord, forgive us and our brothers who have preceded us in faith. 
and put not in our hearts any rancor towards those who believe. I mean, this is the dua of the believers. And when you make this dua, when you, when you recite it, it includes every single person who preceded you in faith from this ummah. And so that's how the believers should be. Even, you know, it even includes, it even includes Muslims who are committing bid'ah. And it even includes Muslims who died on major sins. Also, because they're part of our, they're part of the Ummah of Muhammad And yet, even though they had committed a bid'ah and died upon some sort of heresy, and even though they might have died of some major sin, look what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala teaches us to say: Forgive us and those who preceded us in iman. So, I mean, when you make this du'a, it includes all these members of the Ummah of Muhammad So that's how. The believers are, as the Prophet ﷺ said, Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, Muhammad is Rasulullah, and that those with him are ashiddah, are harsh upon the unbelievers, ruhama, merciful towards one another. So the that's how we should be. I mean, unfortunately, some Muslims we turn it around, right? We are harsh with our brothers, and we're very gentle with the unbelievers, and we should be gentle with the unbelievers because we're trying to you know, for da'wah purposes, right? I mean, in da'wah you're gentle, you know, on the battlefield you're severe, and that's how it is. I mean, now, in dealing with the Serbians, I mean, you can't be gentle with them, right? I mean, if, I mean, if you're on the battlefield, and, you know, you would have to be harsh, because war, you know, necessitates harshness and, and severity, but, um, yeah, I guess the, they want you guys to, oh, like, you know, if you guys can sort of squeeze in so get some some of the end room for the brothers. Brothers, please come forward. No, it's okay. So, you know, but unfortunately we were saying what? That, you know, Muslims should um, be gentle with, with one another and should be severe with the unbelievers. But when you're in da'wah, in the, in the, in the, you should be gentle. I mean, uh, the severity is during, when, it's, when it's demanded. Now, from the sunnah also, is that we pray to Allah that He is pleased with the pure, unsullied wives of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam the best of Allah's uh, best of the messengers Allah's messenger uh, the wives of Allah's messenger uh, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was Khadija and also Aisha um, now Aisha she was of course accused during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of uh, infidelity but Allah cleared her of that accusation which was done by the hypocrites and she is the Prophet's wife in this world and in the hereafter. And so whoever accuses her of what Allah cleared her of, he just has disbelieved. He's a kafir. Why? Because Allah has cleared her. So if any person reviles her and accuses her of what uh, Allah cleared her of, then he's an unbeliever. And uh, here, then, Ibn Khudama mentions that Muawiyah is the maternal uncle of the believers. Now, Muawiyah the reason why he brings Muawiyah anhu, is because you know among the people you know that Ali had a dispute with was Muawiyah 
<coughs> and so the Shia, they revile Muawiyah. And so therefore, Ibn Qudamah wanted to mention this about Muawiyah to, to tell us that, look, no, Muawiyah is one of the Prophet's companions, and he had a dispute with Ali, and it led to war. That was a fitna, but we shouldn't revile any of them. So Muawiyah, uh, he calls him the mater- maternal uncle of the believers, and the reason why is because the, the wives of the Prophet, Allah calls them their mothers. And one of the wives of the Prophet was Muawiyah's sister. So by extension, if the wives of the Prophets are their mothers, then he becomes their maternal uncle. And that's what he's you know, trying to allude to. Um, so who was which, was, which wife of the Prophet Sallallahu was Muawiyah's sister? Which wife of the Prophet Sallallahu was Muawiyah's sister? Okay, so this is something which we have to work on, right? Knowing the wives of the Prophet, right? Because there are mothers. I mean, if now if I asked you who your mother was and you said, you know, gave three or four names, I mean, people, people would, you know, people would, you know, look at you, you know, funny. So, I mean, these are the, the wives of the Prophet, the mother of the believers. We should, you know, know who they are. So, Maybe that's something uh, they can do a, a contest, you know. No, no, the wives of the prophets. Sorry, so. so from the sunnah is to hear and obey the leaders of the Muslims and the commanders of the faithful. The righteous and immoral amongst them so long as they do not command in the disobedience of the law for there is no obedience to anyone in the disobedience of the law. Again, here, the... Um, the, the point is that the leader is a Muslim leader. That's the, the point here. Then we discuss this. And then Ibn Qudamah mentions that whoever assumes the Khilafah and the people gather around him and are pleased with him, or alternatively he takes control by the sword until he is, you know, he forces himself to become the Khalifa and he's called the commander of the believers. You know, obedience to him is obligatory, disobedience to him is forbidden and to revolt against them to split the ranks of the Muslims is also forbidden. You know, the Muslims, you know, if you have a situation where you have a ruler, I mean, the, the correct situation is that the ruler should be chosen by the Muslims, right? And he should be cho- the one that the Muslims are pleased with because of his knowledge and his courage and his integrity and so forth. But you know, history has shown otherwise, that sometimes, you know, people take power by force. So in this situation... You know, you have a ruler who's forced himself on the Muslims. The Muslims are not necessarily pleased with him. What, what should the Muslims do in this case? Here, you know, the, the scholars have, have understood from the words of the Prophet ﷺ that, you know, so long as he's still a Muslim, you still have to obey him. Because the, the alternative is to revolt against him. And to revolt against him will cause much bloodshed and will split the ranks of the Muslims. So to have a ruler who is um, an unpious ruler or a ruler who has forced himself is a lesser evil than to have a revolt and cause bloodshed.
And likewise, from the Sunnah, uh, in paragraph number 91, is that we abandon and separate ourselves from the people who, who do heresy, people of bid'ah. And we leave all debate and argumentation in the religion, and we abandon investigating in the books of bid'ah or listening to their words. Every innovation, everything which is introduced into the religion of Islam is a bid'ah. And all those who are branded with other than Islam and the Sunnah are people of bid'ah, like the Rafidah, the Qadiriyah, the Murjiyah, the Martezila, the Karamiyah, the Kullabiyah, and their likes. They are the sects of deviation from the truth and groups of heresies. We seek refuge with Allah from them. So, anyway, the point is, is that the people of innovation are two types. There are people who are just individuals, individual innovators, and sometimes these individual innovators, they are part of a sect, part of a group. So, in general, if somebody is calling to innovation, preaching to it, the rule is that one should not listen to him, argue with him, debate with him, but rather one should shun him with the innovator, uh, if he's a preacher to that. And likewise, one, those people who are sects which have stepped outside of the sunnah, likewise one should not you know, mingle with them or deal with them. But there is, the point is, is that the aim behind shunning them and migrating from them is in order to cause them to repent and return back to the sunnah. I mean, if you look at it, when the Prophet ﷺ, when the three people in the battle of Tabuk didn't go forward, in the, battle, the, the Prophet ﷺ, when Prophet ﷺ had heard that Caesar had gathered all an army of the of, of the Byzant, of the Byzantines of the Romans uh, to attack Medina, and he had also the northern Arab tribes, which were on the border of Arabia and Syria, and they were Christians, and they had their allegiance to Rome uh, or Constantinople. Uh, you know, he they had also allied them, and so they had were preparing this major army. So the Prophet you know, in the Battle of Tabuk in, in, the, in the ninth year. You know, required upon every single Muslim who was able to go forth. And so, it was in the middle of the summer, in the, the hot, you know, heat of the summer, and so the Muslims went forward to Tabuk, and the Prophet camped there, in the city of Tabuk, which is in northern Arabia, but the, but the Romans and the Byzantines decided not to show up for the battle, so then he returned back to Medina. Now, three of the Prophet's companions didn't go, and they had no excuse. So, the Prophet ﷺ, you know, shunned them, and didn't accept, you know, I mean, when the Prophet, when the Prophet came back, he, he went to the, uh, he asked of the people who didn't go to come and ask, and provide an excuse, you see. And so the hypocrites lied. The hypocrites would say, oh, I was ill, I was tending to this, and so forth. But th- these three men, they told the truth. We had no excuse. And so the Prophet ﷺ shunned them, and he, he said, I would not re- discuss anything with you until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a revelation. So for two months, the Muslims completely shunned them. They neither spoke to them, they neither you know, uh, would buy or sell from them, they would neither visit them, or, or any, anything. Until they had felt that they were completely shunned uh, by the society and so forth, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent down their information of their repentance in Surah Tawbah. 
that Allah repented for them and then the believers greeted them and so forth and you know and in fact they would say salamu alaykum and nobody would respond to them see so the so the idea of of my hijrah of a person you know that you that you know um uh, you know al hijrah from a person that is that for this reason in order to affect change in his behavior in the same way that in sometimes in a household you know the father and mother if they have three or four kids and one kid is acting up they'll say well no one is going to talk to Abdullah you know tonight and he's going to have to eat dinner by himself he's going to go up to his room and you know he'll not be able to you know deal with her. or Fatima you know I'm saying until she you know uh, straightens her uh, up she, she, nobody's going to be talking with her she's not going to go out and leave her there so you know the, the kid you know I'm saying you know feels that this is something very serious and so forth and then you know after maybe an hour or so, you know, or half an hour or ten minutes, you know, immediately changes their behavior and, and affects the change. So that's, that's the idea of, of the idea of shutting it. And at the same time, in the time of Umar, there was a man who was named by the name of Subair, who came to Umar and he was asking questions uh, about the Qur'an, not to try to seek knowledge, but and he was delving into that which only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows, you know. And so, uh, the Umar, you know, uh, beat him and then Umar kicked him out of Medina, and gave an order that no Muslim would be allowed to, to gather with him, meet with him. And so Subayr left Medina and went to Iraq, to Basra. So imagine, he's leaving one country and going to another country, you know, hundreds or th- a thousand miles away. And when he went to Basra, he would try to sit with some Muslims, and the Muslims would immediately get up and say, no, the command of the, uh, the Amir al-Mu'mineen, Amr, will not to sit with you. And so when he, when he realized that wherever he went in the Islamic world, Muslims would not deal with him, he went back to Medina to Umar and he said, those things which were in my head are now gone. You know, so, you see, he repented and he went back like that. So, the point is now, if you were to take the same principle and apply it today in society, among Muslim society, and say that if I find a Muslim doing deviation, or if I find a Muslim who is sinful, I'm going to avoid him and not contact him, then, da'wah would come to an end. You know, because really the idea is that you want to you want to you want to sh- force a change in their behavior, and if the, if the majority of the people are ignorant, if the majority of the people are sinful, if the majority of the people are have deviated from the sunnah and are falling into some sort of bid'ah, then by taking that course of action, you're not going to be able to affect change in their behavior. So, in this case, it's best to mingle with the people and be patient upon them in order to guide them. Provided that one by one mingling in them that it doesn't result in him himself being infected in a negative sense. Okay, as far as these different groups and sects and what, what distinguishes them, I don't think we need to get into that. I mean if somebody has a question specifically we can answer it, but <coughs> but then Ibn Khudama wants us to point out a point that as far as adhering to an Imam in the matters of fiqh like the four groups, then this is not blameworthy. For the differences in these secondary matters of religion, say mercy from Allah, they are praised in their differences, rewarded for their opinions, the differences between them being a wide mercy while their agreement and unequivocal proof. In other words, he's trying to make a distinction between, you know, when, when there, you find a group of Muslims because, like for instance, like the four Imams, he used, the four groups he means like the, four, the followers of the four Imams, like the Hanafis and the Malikis and the Shafi'is and the Hanbalis. See, here in Aqidah, matters of Aqidah, all of these four groups are in agreement. They follow the Aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. 
So the differences are in certain ishtihad concerning certain fiqh matters. So here, if somebody had attributed himself to one of these groups, he's not considered a person of bid'ah. But with the other groups that he mentioned, like the Rafilah, who are the Shia, they have, you know, branded themselves with other than the Sunnah. I mean, in the matters of belief, they have deviated. So that's, that's the difference between that. And then Ibn Qudamah, uh, he concludes the Aqidah uh, by saying, We ask Allah by His mercy and merit uh, to protect us from all uh, heresies and trials and to give us life upon Islam and the Sunnah and to make us among those who follow the Messenger of Allah in this life and to be gathered in His troop after death. Ameen. So, you know, this dua is, notice what he says, gathers upon Islam and the Sunnah. In the same way that the only true religion is the religion of Islam, and if you come to Allah on the Day of Judgment with a religion other than Islam, it will not be accepted from you. Within the Ummah of Muhammad wasallam, the only path is the path of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. And so the Prophet said his Ummah would divide into 73 groups, only one would be successful. And that's those who follow his way in the way of his companions. So that's why Ibn Khudama tells us that we need to, you know, we ask Allah to give us life upon Islam and the Sunnah. So Islam, so in the sense that we come to worshiping Allah alone and Sunnah, and that we follow the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu So we have both aspects of the Shahada. And then Ibn Khudama says, this is the conclusion of the, of the Creed, and he concludes by saying, all praise belongs to Allah, and may he extol our Master Muhammad Sallallahu his family and his companions, and may he greet them with an exceeding salutation. Otherwise, he just said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's my translation for that. So, uh, you know, so that's, inshallah ta'ala, I mean, what I had hoped to cover uh, during these um, uh, two, two or three days. And I, I thank the brothers and sisters for being patient and for listening and for uh, asking good questions. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us life upon Islam and the Sunnah and that he you know, raises us in the truth of the Prophet Muhammad on the Day of Judgment. He forgives us our, our sins and gives us understanding in his religion and keeps us on his straight path and protects us from all trials and all uh, sins. And Jazakumullahu khairan, subhanakallahumu bihamdika, shalom alayhila, anta astaghfirullahu We can take some questions in a few minutes. And there are so many questions, brother, uh, but uh, with your permission and with the brothers and sisters' permission, I chose to break the rule for this session regarding notices sent to here. Uh, I shall leave the opportunity for, I picked up a few papers which is of importance to us as a whole. Uh, it's not to do with this course, not to do with this topic, because in the past lectures we kept uh, all questions and answers related to the topics but because there are some in my opinion important issues here then with your permission I'll <coughs> the first one is to do with Al-Muntadir Islami well, let's, 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 let's first I mean see if there's one or two questions regarding what we just went over in terms the of material is yours, I mean, we, what we just discussed just now there's one okay. question just two hands raised you get the chance Shalom Yeah, well, I mean, if you're 20 brothers, for instance, right, and there's one brother who deviates, right, I mean, whether it's due to sin or to some sort of bid'ah, 
And the 20 brothers say, look, we're not going to until you give this up, right? And it's going to affect a change in him. Then that's, yes. But, you know, if it's a situation now where, you know, the 20 brothers and, you know, if he falls into a bid out, he'll end up not feeling ostracized, but rather he'll join 1,000 people. You see what I'm saying? Then, you know, your position towards him won't affect him in any way. You see? And so here, the, the, the correct path is to be gentle and to try to convince him to leave that bid out rather than to ostracize him, you see. Okay. Yes, sir. You know, to the, the last question, can we say that Khomeini will be in hell? No, we can't say that he'll be in hell. Because we cannot specific, specifically say that an individual is in paradise or in hell unless the Prophet ﷺ told us that. But we can say that he's a kafir. He's a kafir. Okay, I mean, he's not a Muslim. Because, I mean, what he said in his book that you mentioned, Kashf al-Asrar, that the Qur'an was changed and so forth, I mean, that makes him a kafir. But that, to say that he's in hell, we can't say that. This is something for Allah to... You know, so, he died as a kafir, so we won't seek forgiveness for him. We won't, you know, uh, you know ask uh, Allah subhanahu wa to share mercy upon him and so forth. But, uh, what's the other question? Can we say that all the rafidah are... Yes, I mean, in general, the Shia, in general, the Shia, in general, you find the vast majority of them commit shirk. In, in, in their in their in their uh, in their practice, so in general, shirk and the Shias are things which are not separable. But again, you cannot say that every single Shi'i is a mushrik like that, because you might find a person who's a Shi'i, you know, who who doesn't commit shirk. I mean, he he's a person of tawhid. I mean, he doesn't you know implore Hassan or Hussein or Fatim or Ali, you know. And at the same time, even if he was a mushrik, right? And he dies as a mushrik, right? I mean, he died praying to Hussein or whatever. You still cannot say that he's going to be in the hellfire. Because this is something we cannot call a, a specific individual, a specific individual, that this person, let's say, you know, uh, the specific Shi'i, that he was, you know, going to hell. We can say that, you know, he died on shirk, so we will not pray for his soul, we will not make salat al janazah, because he's a mushrik. But we cannot say that he's you know, will be in the hellfire. Because only Allah knows if the proof was established against him that he has no excuse before Allah. And one more question, sir. Uh, yes, the, um, the womb, being the ties of the womb. Huh? Uh, before I get in touch with those questions or points being raised, I'll, uh, I have a few announcements to make, inshallah, for forthcoming activities by Al-Muntada Al-Islami and by other groups, inshallah. 
the first, inshallah, the final session with Sheikh Tamimi, not here, inshallah, at the East London Masjid in Whitechapel. Sheikh Ali Tamimi will be delivering a mini lecture before, that is titled Poverty Before Allah. This is after Salat al-Maghrib today at around 8.30 at the East London Mosque. Second announcement is, the we mentioned this before, an activity for the sisters. Uh, it is uh, in association with a group called uh, Anasiha. Uh, this is uh, a one-day seminar. Uh, there will be many seminars uh, for the sisters and represented or, or given, delivered by sisters as well. No sheikhs involved. Maybe sheikh has. <laughs> okay, this is on the 8th of May, inshallah, uh, on Saturday, 8th of May, for one-day uh, seminar of lectures, uh, day of lectures. The other announcement is to do with, uh, inshallah, the 7th International Dawah Conference uh, under the title Striking the Balance into Year 2000. Uh, of course, this is uh, arranged and organized by Jamiyat Ahya Minhaj Al-Sunnah. All are encouraged, inshallah, to benefit from this important event which takes place every two years. Uh, the place is uh, in Leicester, inshallah. And uh, for further details, the, this leaflet has been distributed uh, to you, inshallah, throughout the course. And it is available from the reception and from the uh, free literature uh, racks on the walls of Al-Muntada al-Islami. Uh, another uh, announcement, uh, as we have announced to most of you before, Al-Muntada al-Islami, inshallah, intends to uh, open a secondary, skills, uh, secondary school for girls. This is, uh, inshallah, starting next academic year in September 1999. Uh, as such, we seek to recruit, inshallah, uh, sisters, teacher sisters, uh, as uh, part-timers, as well as there would be a place for one full-time. Uh, applicants are invited, inshallah, from the sisters to apply. As you know, inshallah, uh, for the permanent position, to have to be a fully qualified teacher for the secondary uh, teaching, inshallah. Uh, please apply to Al-Muntada Al-Islami Administration. The other announcement is uh, uh, an appeal by, uh, inshallah, uh, an exhibition for the benefit of uh, the problem in Kosovo. Uh, there is uh, an exhibition, Kosovo Refugee Crisis. This is uh, arranged by the Albanian Islamic Society in organizing uh, an exhibition about the situation in Kosovo and actual refugee crisis. This is Parsh Mosque. Uh, with regard to our study circles, inshallah, as you know, uh, inshallah, this uh, center uh, can, uh, have circles, study circles, namely on Friday evenings at 7.30. Times might vary according to Salah times, but uh, normally speaking, it's around 7.30 every Friday, a circle uh, uh, tackling the topic of uh, lessons from the Sira. Uh, also, the Saturday circle, which is usually consists of two sessions, the first of which is a fiqh session represented by Sheikh Abu Fadl Masur Al Ahmad, followed usually by a tafsir session. This is every Saturday around 6:30 uh, in the evening, inshallah. Uh, an activity for the uh, young boys, inshallah, every Sunday between the age of seven to 14 years old, uh, an activity at al Islami to teach them Quran and uh, Islamic studies. Uh, like uh, I said again, 7 to 14 years old boys, that is, every Sunday, at Al-Muntada Al-Islami. Uh, with regard to uh, the tapes, 
Uh, I remind all the brothers and sisters, tapes for this course, inshallah, are available from uh, the bookshop at Al-Muta Islami. Uh, the final lectures maybe will not be ready for today. Uh, should you require them, you could always email us uh, or uh, write to us, post us, inshallah, and we will be forwarding to them to you, inshallah, at uh, uh, more or less the cost price. Uh, the importance of the question which I, I, I re, uh, referred to earlier on, uh, the question of papers, brothers and sisters, is very important, as I said. We had a lot of comments, mashallah, from the last course, for example, and we tried, of course, to our best to uh, improve on your, you know, on your uh, critical points. And uh, without that, inshallah, we wouldn't have been known, we wouldn't have known these uh, yani, uh, uh, shortcomings. So please uh, make uh, sure that you uh, fill in the uh, questionnaires which we distributed. And for those who haven't got a copy, a brother will be standing at the exit, inshallah, uh, to give you uh, a blank copy for your completion, inshallah. These are the announcements. I let Sheikh Tamimi start with this, uh, inshallah, the points which I collected for you. He says, uh, please, brother, uh, we are in desperate need of brothers to take an interest in the recreation of our sons between the age of 11 and 15. As of the present time, there are no facilities to cater for their needs. We feel that at this age, it is most important to spend time teaching them the ways and values of Islam. Uh, while we are here learning the message, uh, our boys are left to their own devices. As a result, many find... Uh, find themselves in trouble, or more importantly, are causing problems in the massage and surrounding area. Please, brothers, uh, with the help of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well, you know, this is, I mean, I think the sister really touched on an issue which is very important. I mean, you know, many of us, when we have, we bring our children, you know, when, a ch when you bring your child, the child is an infant, that's one thing. When you bring your child like five years old, six years old, seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, and comes to the masjid, it's natural. The child is going to do what the parent is going to say. So those are the easy years, really. So what comes afterwards, when the child starts forming its own personality and starts getting influenced and starts, you know, molding its, his or herself with her environment, especially if she's not in an Islamic school, or even sometimes even if she's in an Islamic school or he's in an Islamic school, that's where the problem occurs. So, you know, the question is not that we bring the, the, the kids, the small kids to the masjid, and, you know, you see the mashallah, you know, he's got a little kufi on his head or a little hijab and stuff like that. That's, that's to be expected, but what happens when the child, you know, now grows and becomes a young adult or a teenager and so forth. These are the critical years where, you know, the child can, you know, get into a lot of, you know, problems and, and starts forming conceptions that can, you know, you know, really the personality starts to get formed that will sort of direct that, that person, that human being for the rest of their lives. So it's important that some of the brothers, you know, take, you know, uh, care to specialize in that. You know, we need to have specialization in da'wah. Not everybody should, is going to teach, and not everybody's going to man the da'wah tables, right? And not everybody's going to be a director and run affairs here like Abu Bashir gets tired uh, taking care of all the affairs here at al so, Some, you know, some people uh, have to uh, do other things, right? So we have some brothers need to concern about charity, and some brothers need to, you know, dedicate themselves to the youth, and some brothers need to dedicate themselves to like visiting Muslims in the hospital, and some people need to dedicate themselves to, 
helping Muslims like tend the burials when when a Muslim dies that they you know assist them in that in that stage in terms of you know if they if they don't know how to wash the body they wash the body they help them shroud the body so you know you need to form all these different groups and one of the good things which uh, I mean I started to notice with the brothers in Washington D.C. is that they started to start the specialization I mean and it, it came natural I mean nobody sat there and told them to do that I mean that you know you find some brothers now who are just, you know, interested with the youth. You know, I mean, these brothers are, you know, and they, and they start developing experience and quality and talent in that, which is, which is far better than anybody else that can do that. Because they're sitting with these, you know, teenage boys, you know, every single day. And so they know how to discipline them, they know how to handle them, they know how to communicate with them, and so forth. And then there are other brothers who who go out once a week and they, and they do something similar to like your dawah tables. But they don't, we don't have dawah tables, but they, they just go out to like, you know, shopping malls and so forth and, and visit people and try to give them, you know, literature about Islam and call them to Islam. And these brothers have become very, you know, uh, very um, educated and very proficient in learning how to address non-Muslims, you know, and to maximize a short period of time when you contact a person is going to give you just like a, a minute or two of his or her time to, to reach, to get the message of Islam to so that maybe one of us who has not done that, you know, would find it difficult to try to bring Islam to them. And there might be other brothers who are working in the schools and who know how the, the school system is so forth. And we have also other brothers who, in the United States, who work in journalism and they are working with different Muslim organizations that, you know, deal with like responding to uh, the newspapers or something, or like if you know if we f if we hear some Muslims in some certain area, his rights have been um, uh, uh, you know transgressed again. They know these brothers know how to contact the congressman for that area. They make a you know a, a special uh, drive and they get all the Muslims calling that congressman from that area. So that congressman then takes you know will fly back to that state. So like for instance, like if we have a, a Muslim who, like a masjid in, in some part of the United States, gets burnt down. So these brothers know how to contact that senator who represents that state or that congressman and will force that congressman to fly, you know, back over the weekend and come to the masjid and make a public statement. They say, no, we, we, we don't tolerate any discrimination against Muslims. So people, when they specialize, they develop, you know, the qualities needed for uh, effectively conveying the da'wah in that field. So... Brothers, you know, every single one of us should figure what his specialty is. And it's whatever to, that you find com yourself comfortable with it. And if you don't have anything and you're not interested, then, I mean, the best thing you can do is just with you and your family, you know, live an upright life. And if you're married and you have children, or, or if you're going to get married just with your family and so forth, then that's, that's you know, an, a sufficient. But, if, you know, if you want more in the hereafter and you want to strive for Allah's religion, we should all try to seek to reach the highest level, then we should have some sort of specialty. So if there are some brothers who want to take care of the youth, let them specialize, let them get in contact with uh, organizations that can assist them, uh, like in Munteda or other organizations where, you know, they might have facilities, they might have, you know, means to assist the brothers, and they should start, you know, targeting the youth. And I think now is a good time, because you have maybe a month or so before school gets out, right? And when school gets out, what, I mean, what happens to the youth? They just get run wild in the streets, right? That's... At least that, that's what it, you know.
Listen, that's how it was when 25 years ago. I don't know how it's, it's still. Yeah, uh, uh, of course, okay, uh, what so. the Sheikh is saying as well, this is uh, the, to do it the proper way, the more professional way as well. Uh, but uh, I am talking now because, I mean, we, no. I've seen uh, these kinds of lines written to Mutaita's administration many times. And uh, we sort of look at it uh, with, you know, with no resources. What can we do? This is says here, uh, not necessarily meaning that we are after specialized people. If we have that, of course, that's uh, you know for the best. But uh, you know, when we run programs for example, like this one or all study circles on Saturday, for example, we can cater for you know the sisters and Allah khair, and usually we get more sympathy, more volunteers from the sisters to cater for the ages you know which which within their capability that the children you know girls and boys you know ages uh, four to ten years old. Right. Beyond that uh, age, it becomes you know the speciality of brothers. But unfortunately, not many brothers are allowed to really extend the helping hand. And, uh, you know, a karate class, a, a simple uh, computer class. Alhamdulillah, Al-Mutad Al-Islami, with its building by the grace of Allah, got many facilities not available in many other masjids. But yet, يعني, it's not really fully used. We need the resources, human resources, inshallah. And uh, we cannot يعني, promise... Uh, high salary and so on. We need volunteers basically, brothers, uh, more than sisters, okay? Like I said, sisters alhamdulillah at the moment are doing a good job, mashallah, and even they cater for the girls after the age of 10. Uh, but uh, the problem with the boys, and this is what we're suffering and uh, inshallah no, we, and we'll don't young men, young men want to see, you know, adults, because they, when they, you know, when you have a, a boy who's 12 or 13 or 14 and he sees you as an adult and so forth, I mean, he looks up to you. I mean, you know, he f- wants to mimic you. You know, most young, most young boys, what they're looking for is they're looking for some sort of role model. And if you're, you know, that role model, you know, who's, uh, you know, physically strong and you know some karate and you can, you know, whiz kid at the computer and stuff like that, and, you know, you drive a car. I mean, to him, you know, you're, the, the, there's nothing, you know. Yeah, you know, that's it, you know what I'm saying? So he just, you know, wants to, you know, be like you. And, and, and that's how you can impress him, you know what I'm saying? And to, to, you know, to show him and to, you know, sort of let him talk and let him feel comfortable and get, you know, and then, inshallah, a lot of good will come out of that. Jazakallah. Uh, two more points, inshallah. Uh, this one is sent twice. Second time is urgent. Yeah. Uh, what is the Islamic ruling regarding women traveling without a mahram uh, to attend Islamic conferences? Example, the Leicester Conference in August. Well, I think this question has been answered before. Other conferences by other mashayikh, so you can refer to those for tell. I don't want to. You don't want to come into. Don't want to. No, don't want to involve myself in this issue. <laughs> okay. In this debate. So. Is this a correct uh, No, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think the brother was saying that you know Ramla bint Abi Sufyan, he uh, Um Habiba. That's right. So okay. that, that's correct. And so finally, this point, Shana. Jazakumullah khairan for that. So I, you know, when the brother said Ramla, that, that says Um Habiba, that's correct. Jazakumullah khairan. Uh, if we miss the 9th of Muharram, is it acceptable for us to fast the 10th of Ashura? The Prophet said fast a day before it or a day after it to be different than the Jews. So if you didn't fast today, uh, fast tomorrow the 10th, and then fast also Tuesday to be different than the Jews in, in that practice. Right, uh, inshallah, like I have said in the past, all the sweet things must come to an end. Inshallah, we came to the end of this 
Islam say sorry brother Shalai could have a, a small chat by by sides right, after the finish. So Jazakumullah Khair for attending and uh, on your behalf we uh, express our gratitude and thanks to Sheikh Ali Timimi who wasn't really well recently but Jazakumullah Khair for accepting our invitation and give us this inshallah uh, amount of knowledge may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put it on his scale of the good deeds on the day of judgment. Jazakumullah Khair, Subhanakallah Muhabdik, Ashadu Allah ilaha illa ant, Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayka.